Hello and welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. This is the podcast that ponders the great question, Jewish mothers, should every home have one? Well, not quite literally, but the wisdom, the humour and all the great things that Jewish mothers have brought to us in generations before. My name's Angela Epstein. I'm Lynn Dover. Noemi Lopian. And we're absolutely thrilled and delighted today to welcome Edwina Curry. Edwina, welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. My pleasure. Edwina had an illustrious career as a politician, a writer, a broadcaster, a mother, grandmother now, I believe. And we just want to know so many different things about all these different facets to your personality and what influences that drove you to become the person that you are. Can you create a picture of your mother? What was she like? My mum was born in Liverpool, probably because her dad arrived age 16 from somewhere in Poland. And um, we think he may have got off in Liverpool and possibly not had the money to go any further because the idea would always be to go to the States. But also possibly he had a look round Liverpool in 1897 was thriving. Uh, he had relatives he could go to. And I think he probably thought, do you know what, this will do nicely. Uh, a few years later, he was married to Annie and they started to bring up eight children. And we would regard them as living in considerable poverty now, but they had the riches of strong family ties. Um, they were very uh, involved in the community. Annie's father ran the mikvah in Liverpool for many, many years. So they knew everybody. Um, they were part of everybody's crowd, I think. And um, as a result, my mum, who was the middle one of eight, uh, grew up, I think, in a very strong family environment. The problem was partly that she was one of the older ones, and therefore they all had to go out to work. So she was out at work at 14, didn't get an education, which I think she craved. The younger ones went on to uni. My uncle went to Cambridge in the 1930s. How about that? Was commissioned in the army during the Second World War. So there was a, a bit of a, a divide going on, partly because of the younger ones having to go out to work and the older ones being able then to stay at school and do well. But I don't think she ever resented that. It did mean, however, that she was very intrigued when I made it clear that I wanted to stay at school and go and get myself an education. And she used to talk rather wistfully about me going to Cambridge like her brother. When I went to Oxford, she couldn't get that at all. She couldn't get her head around it. Why do you want to go to Oxford? You could have gone to Cambridge. Well, they offered me a scholarship, Mum. It made a difference. <laughs> um, what was the subject? I went to university to read chemistry, just like Margaret Thatcher. It's not a coincidence entirely, although I didn't know that at the time. In those days, it was much harder for girls to get into university. I mean, hardly anybody went to university, but less than 10% of 18-year-olds. And amongst those, it was a handful of women. And Oxford and Cambridge especially discriminated very heavily. But the non-discriminating parts of the universities were science. And if you presented as a girl who wanted to do maths or science you'd probably get in on much the same terms as the boys. So what was it like growing up at home, Edwina? What, what was your childhood like? It was a mixture. I was yeah. always very interested and very proud of the heritage. And in fact, I did classical Hebrew O-level. So did I. And it's not easy. <laughs> so I was interested in the heritage. I had various friends that went off to Israel on Aliyah, particularly after 1967. But by then I was at university and my loyalties were shifting very substantially. What I found hard were the prohibitions and particularly mm -hmm. the prohibitions on friendships. Uh, you will not go around with people who aren't Jewish. 
And in fact, we'd much prefer you to go around with people who are Orthodox Jewish. Why? And the kind of uh, the, the tale telling that went on, you know, if I was seen with somebody else, <laughs> somebody would tell her parents and their parents would phone mine and then I'd get it in the neck. And increasingly, I became rather stubborn about this, but I also increasingly learned to keep my mouth shut. Uh, so going to uni was a form of escape. And I recall the uh, conversation with our head teacher at, at Liverpool Institute High School for Girls on the lines of, well, which university would you like to go to? How about Liverpool? No, I'd have to stay home. Uh, how about Manchester? No, well, I'd have to go and stay with my uncle and aunt. <laughs> how about London? Well, we couldn't afford London. How about Oxford and Cambridge? That looks okay. How would I get in? That's how this, the conversation develops. I was actually determined not to disgrace my parents, but I was also determined to start making my own choices, particularly about who my friends were. And I've always had exactly that same attitude ever since. Are you glad now, looking back with the choices that you made, or what would you tell the young Edwina today? Oh, I tell the young Edwina, yes, just keep smiling innocently. <laughs> I like the word innocently, yeah. Very interesting to hear that on the one hand, your parents want you to do something as progressive as go out to Oxford, Cambridge. That's quite progressive. It's not Manchester University with a shtiebel on every corner and a, you know, a little Jewish community on every corner. But on the other hand, they're saying stay within the fold. So was the idea that you should marry a nice Jewish boy and replicate that whole Jewish identity that you came from? Had I found the right Jewish boy in Liverpool, I'd probably still be living there. But I did have a good look round. <laughs> honestly, I went to um, Harold House to the Jewish yeah. Youth Club. I appointed myself as in charge of the record player because then I got to put the music I liked uh, on the record player for dancing to. And there were one or two boys who were good dancers and they were cool and all the rest of it. Uh, one of them then told me that he was bringing his cousins over from Belgium. And um, I, he said to me, you, know, you do French at school, don't you? I'm about 14, 15. I said, yeah. He said, well, he doesn't speak any English. Would you talk to him? Yeah. And then this gorgeous fellow walked in. Oh, my <laughs> God. In a red cashmere sweater. Can you imagine in Liverpool? <laughs> and I talked French to this guy. His name was André. And um, we started to write to each other. And then we discovered that the cousin was not actually Jewish. He was Roman Catholic, oh. at which point I learned how to keep secrets. So there was already that sort of, you know, there are gateways elsewhere. There are ways out. And the contrast between this stunning bloke, absolutely lovely, is when his mum came across to check me out, she wore a white suit. I'd never seen a woman in a white suit before. I mean, Liverpool was filthy, you know, and, and they, they talked about lovely places like Charleroi and Eno, and I'm going, oh, my God, I could be a princess, you know. A bit later on, by the time I'm getting a little more sophisticated, yes, I'm thinking a bit broader than Brussels or Belgium. But you're quite right. My parents were quite conflicted about it, and I have a lot of sympathy for them, especially my dad. He was the last of his family to be in the UK. All his brothers and sisters had emigrated, most of them in 1947 on, uh, I think it was the Queen Mary. They'd all gone to New York. Uh, he was left behind, partly because he was married with a young baby. That's me. But also he'd had TB as a young man. And I think it did knock the stuffing out of him. And I think he realised that as he was heading for nearly 40, he was not going to make a success of life in New York. 
whereas he had his own tailoring business in Liverpool, he had his friends, he was in familiar territory. So he chose to do the, well, to stay within his comfort zone, we would say. That made him, I think, exert more effort to be a little more strict with my brother and me. It worked with my brother, at least in his first marriage, until kind of he saw the light and he went off to Australia for a while. Oh, oh my God. So there's a sense in which it doesn't work. You have to nurture love of religion. You have to nurture more than you must do this. And my dad, in the end, was an atheist. He only went to shul on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah because he felt obliged to. And he would actually work on Saturdays and he would say, but today then everybody comes in to pay. So what can I do? So there was an element of conflict even there. Now, young people resolve conflicts by saying, I'm not doing this. I'm not having anything to do with this. I know the pure way. And the pure way was to head off elsewhere, eat what I wanted. Still don't really like shellfish. Because it's not kosher or because you don't like the taste? Wasn't brought up no. with it. Now I, can, I can cope if the shells are off. <laughs> when did the politics set in? It, this was partly my dad, who I think had always rather harboured ideas of getting involved in politics back in the 1930s. He was an articulate, intelligent, very well-read man. We had the ragged trousered philanthropists at home. We had the home university encyclopedia. He loved opera. You could hear him sometimes in the bar singing snatches of Carmen and that kind of thing. They would go to the theatre. Every three weeks they had tickets for the uh, Liverpool Rep, which was opposite where my dad's shop was. And they would always go, no matter what the show was, as a means of self-educating. So what I used to do was I got permission. The school food was horrible. So I got permission to go out of school at lunchtime and go and have a sandwich with my dad. And sometimes I went and had a sandwich with my dad. And sometimes I went to the cavern and I went to listen to the band. And that's when my dad was thought, thought I was doing extra work in school and the school thought I was at my dad's. But on, the <laughs> occasion, <laughs> um, but on the occasions when I was at my dad's, which were quite often, his way of communicating would be to get the newspaper and say, look at this, and then comment about the headlines. And it was his way of communicating with his, you know, rather clever daughter. And that was great. So I was very well aware of what was going on. Macmillan came to Liverpool very early on in the 1960s when I was at school. He spoke at the Philharmonic Hall. He wanted us to join the European Economic Community as it was then. Uh, Liverpool was a place where politics happened. The front pages of the Liverpool Echo had a woman MP on them, Bessie Braddock, so we didn't think anything strange about that. Um, she was very light and very well respected. And when I thought, right, I'm going to try and do Oxford and Cambridge, my wonderful head teacher said, you need more than science. If you only turn up with science, they won't look at you. You have to do something else. Do you like reading? Do you like Dickens? Do you like Jane Austen? And no. <laughs> well, how about what used to be called current affairs? When they're figuring out how the, how the economy works, how the constitution works. So I joined something called the Liverpool Parliamentary Debating Society, which was a relic from Victorian times and met in the municipal annex. And we had debates on the topics of the day. There were about 20 of us. And we, we formed Her Majesty's government and Her Majesty's opposition. And we did it parliamentary style. And I did that for ages. Um, I then found myself really getting interested and involved. And the, the turning point was when 
you know, Liverpool had been losing population. Liverpool was flattened in the war. And it was a long time before I realised that everybody I knew was suffering from PTSD after the war. You know, houses had been bombed. My grandfather had been killed. It was not great. Everyone was kind of quiet and shuffled around a bit as a result. And as a result of the city losing population, schools were beginning to be closed. The Liverpool City Council decided it was going to close Liverpool Institute, great institution, and Liverpool Institute for Girls. And in half term, after I'd done my A-levels and I was waiting to go for an interview, one of the pupils came to me and said, Edwina, we've got up a petition. We want to petition Liverpool City Council to keep the schools open. Would you help us? I said, I can't. I'm doing my exams. Go and ask the head girl. Oh, she's doing her <laughs> exams as well. Oh, were you scary on. even then? You were scary <laughs> even then, Edwina. I was, I was full of bitterness. I was the deputy head girl. And I was deputy head girl because I didn't do sport. And I didn't do sport because I had asthma. And I thought that was deeply unfair. So I ended up leading a demo in half term with police escort and 400 kids in uniform marching down to the channel. So, the, so it's in it, it was there. It's sort of bleeding out of you, the, the determination oh, to lead. I thoroughly enjoyed okay. myself. It meant when I went for an uh, interview and they asked the standard question, and what did you do in half term? I said, I led a demo and told them all about it. <laughs> Just before we come on to obviously explore your political career and perhaps your your mum in particular, her, her approach to your political career, bearing in mind you were elected in 1983 as an MP, but had been involved in local politics before then. You married your first husband, 1972. That was Ray. I met him through work. I joined Arthur Anderson after uni. And uh, that's partly because I didn't have any money and I wasn't going back to Liverpool, so I had to earn some money. So what do you do? You get yourself a proper job. And I thought, well, I'll train as an accountant and then I can work anywhere at any time. And then the team leader walked in and then I thought it was just like the... He looked very much like Andre, actually. Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been in touch with Andre since your first love? Oh, much more recently. Um, And he stayed in Belgium and became a farmer and oh. married a local girl. So that was a lucky escape, really. For you, offer for you. <laughs> well, yeah. perhaps for both of us. Which is not your polite. <laughs> so I mentioned um, your late first husband. It was because lovely chap as he would have been, but he wasn't Jewish. And given what you'd said about just boyfriends and seeing people that, you know, your parents had ideas about wanting you to stay within the in the fold and obviously marrying in, as they call it. What was the reaction when you said, this is the man I'm going to marry? Well, I said to Ray, uh, my parents won't accept you, my dad especially. And he said, basically, don't be ridiculous. That's a medieval attitude. So we better go and talk to him. So he went down to see my dad on a quiet morning in the workshop and they had a conversation and poor Ray came out white and shaking. He said, you were absolutely right. He said, I make a perfect son-in-law, except I'm not Jewish. I said, right, okay. So let's think about where to get married. Where would your mother like us to get married? And the answer was, oh, that's simple. In the parish church down in Devon, we'll do that. And it wasn't that none of my family came. My uncle, my mum's brother, who had also married out, but had stayed very close to the family, Uncle Sam, contacted me and said, who's giving you away? And I said, well, nobody. I didn't quite approve of being given away, but there you go. He said, I'll come with Auntie Jean. We'll do it. And he wowed everybody. He was so lovely. Now, my mum then did something really nice, which is she just stayed in touch. 
in a quiet and tactful way, she stayed in touch. So when baby number one arrived and then baby number two, she came up. She was a proud grandma. She didn't say anything much. She just in a slightly stubborn way. I get stubbornness from both sides of the family. Uh, she stuck to her guns and didn't argue with my dad as far as I know. And he had the common sense to let her do that. But there was one occasion not long after my first baby was born and I was in Liverpool at my brother's house and dad brought mum to see the baby and would not get out of the car to come into the house. Did you find that particularly hurtful or did you accept that? My attitude at the time was that's his loss, not mine. If I had been a kinder person or perhaps a little more secure, I'd have carried the baby out to the car and said, here's your granddaughter. And he would probably have tried to ignore me. But that would have caused him more pain. And so I didn't. I stayed in my brother's house and um, mum came and we had lots of photos taken and she was happy. I was just going to say, I think mum showed more strength of character in that she knew what she was going to do. She was going to stay in touch. She stayed in touch with all the members of her family, including those, her brothers and sisters, two of them married out. They were still her dear and beloved uh, siblings. Whereas my dad had rigidities that I think were a reflection more of him not believing anything. It's weird, isn't it? Did it strengthen your relationship with your mother? or How did it change and evolve? I think I admired mum for doing it. Mm. And in a way, I saw there the 14-year-old little girl, as she was, who was obliged to leave school because there was a new baby in their house and who never complained about it, did her best, and within six months had got herself a better job and generally had made the most of life even mm. when there were lots of barriers and restrictions to her. I figured out long afterwards, and I think what my dad was doing was saying, what you do in private is entirely up to you, but what you do in public, you have to do correctly. And that wasn't mum's attitude at all. For her, it was kind of seamless. But about um, three years later, dad died in 1975. And so he, he didn't see his younger grandchild. He died of... Um, heart attack he was a heavy smoker he was one of a generation that didn't look after themselves you know and because he had survived tb when his best friend had died at the age of 19 i think he was a fatalist i don't think he, he, he thought all doctors were quacks and there was uh, <laughs> no good advice coming out of a doctor's surgery and all the rest of it whereas my mum was much cleverer about things and lived to be nearly 93 and we had a great relationship mm. Do you think as mothers ourselves, we have a very protective and close bond with our children that I would find impossible or difficult to sever? How have you done that with your children? How, how do you feel? Do you say, feel the same sort of protectiveness towards your own children? Women are nurturing. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of cliches and stereotypes about this, but the idea that somehow men and women are exactly the same in relationship to parenting, with few exceptions, it's simply not true. It's not just a cultural thing. I think there's something deep down in us that makes us very protective and want to perhaps mother our children a bit longer than we should. So I now have children who are 48 and uh, 46. <laughs> you have two daughters. So given the matrilineal tradition of Judaism, whereby the lineage, the Jewish heritage is passed down through the mother, your daughters are, are Jewish and 
obviously being mindful of, of the way and the views that your mum had about and your parents had, do you connect culturally together with them? Do you do Friday night dinners? Do they, do they feel especially Jewish or do they feel their Jewish heritage? What I tried to gift them was an awareness of our culture. And both of them had a gap year. And Debbie, my older daughter, spent five months on Kibbutz Kfar Hanassi which was terrific. And it did mean that I had the opportunity while she was there to go and visit and join him with a parliamentary delegation. So I got to go to Jerusalem and I met Prime Minister Rabin. And his, uh, his picture is one of my cherished possessions, standing with him. That was lovely. She fell in love with the Sabra and went back to Israel five times until it dawned on her that the Sabra was heading for Australia and wasn't interested. Oh, <laughs> He saw other opportunities. Uh, Susie also spent three weeks on a kibbutz and enjoyed it very much, but was more interested in the history. She's been back to Israel with me uh, since then, and we've had very good, enjoyable trips. But I think Susie's religious feeling came out in different ways, and she is now an evangelical Christian and a very active person in her church. So she's orthodox, but not our kind of orthodox. Um, how do you feel about that? If that's how she wants to be, that's lovely. It does give her extraordinary strength to do remarkable things. So when she and her husband found they couldn't have kids, she didn't hesitate. They decided to adopt and they have a little girl who is now four years old. I've been with them for two years. The resilience and persistence required to get all mm. that sorted out during COVID was unbelievable. Imagine court cases and all the rest of it. The social workers were wonderful. Their view was because of lockdown, there'd be more kids coming in needing to be looked after. So if we can place these who are being offered homes well, then we will do that. And mm. um, I, I have the utmost admiration. So now I've got a granddaughter. She's got bright red hair, big blue eyes, <laughs> and she's very talkative. We were going to talk, weren't we, about he became an MP in 1983. Was your mum proud? She lived to this fantastic ripe old age, so she was witness to a lot of your political career. She must have been very proud of you. Yes, I think so. And in fact, this came about as a Woman of the Year event, and there was a Mothers of the Year event kind of attached to it. So because I was an MP, bearing in mind there were only 23 women in the House of Commons at the time, she got invited to this Mothers mm. of the Year event with the mothers of other famous people. Oh my God, does she enjoy it. She's got a new outfit for it. She <laughs> had a lovely time. She stayed in a nice hotel in London, all expenses paid. And she knew how unusual it was. And I think she knew that some of that resilience that I had and the stubbornness was being put to good use. With my dad, it had been put to destructive use. And it's one of the reasons I think he died relatively young. But with me, it was, you know, we're brought up with a tradition of service, aren't we? The idea being you serve God, you serve your family, you serve your community. It kind of felt quite natural. And also, I rather like the idea, and I sometimes still remind people of this, the old Ashkenazi tradition, that it's only a good deed if you don't tell anybody about it. Yeah. If only you and God know about it. Which is why you'll often see me getting very cross with virtue signalers on Twitter. And we now are going to jump a little bit. Fascinating, because you've brought it out in the open yourself, is that um, your little dingle with John Major, and you are this vivacious, intelligent, bright, colourful 
personality and you came across like that even to me as a young person and John Major was very great to me and when I heard about your liaison he became a more magical person for me what was the attraction how did it come about are you prepared to open up a little bit well, we were we were colleagues. We were both junior ministers in what was then the Department of Health and uh, Social Services. So we had substantial responsibilities. He was on the pensions and social services side. It was a huge, huge department. And I was on the health side. Never stopped working. But it meant that you got somebody else to chat to. And the atmosphere amongst the ministers was warm and friendly. Every time I see I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, I'm reminded <laughs> of that team of, I think, eight ministers, including the members of the Lords and the Whips office, who would regularly have lunch together, regularly meet for a breakfast, talking freely, trusting everybody. And as the most junior person, the one who'd arrived in Parliament most recently, sometimes there'd be something I didn't quite understand. And I could say, can you explain this to me? Or how should we handle that? Or if we want to make progress on this subject, what's the best way of doing it? So we were pals. And of course, what most people didn't realise, because there were so few women, because we wore more brightly coloured outfits, because we were in many ways more spectacular people than the 600 grey men in suits that were there. And because Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, so that we were surrogates in a way. People didn't realise that actually to get there, you had to have a deeply serious side. You had to be committed to getting things done. I got involved very much in women's health. I managed to bring in nationwide cancer screening for breast cancer and for cervical cancer. We were the first country in the world to do both. They'd been kind of hovering around for a long time, but the question is, how do you get this done? What do you have to do? How do we have a campaign that doesn't look like a campaign? And how do we get the money? And in that respect, John was a really good friend. And at the same time, we could see that when Margaret eventually retired, if ever, that her replacement was going to be somebody much less strident and somebody who made friends and was liked and trusted. And it was not going to be Michael Heseltine because he basically split the party in 1985 when he walked out of the cabinet. And he was a, a rather flamboyant personality. The last mm. thing the party wanted was somebody else that was flamboyant. So John and one or two other people were clearly in the frame. And I took upon myself, and others did the same, to try and advise him on presentation, that you need to get yourself on TV. You need to learn how to speak naturally on TV. You know how to speak on a soapbox because he'd done that in Brixton, but you need to be available to do the TV stuff, especially as a minister. And you need to cultivate some of the press so that they know you and you are the go-to person. And I remember once him telling me with great amusement that the TV programme Question Time had started not long ago and I'd already been on it. And he said he'd been phoned by the producer who wanted him to audition for it. And I said, you say to her very politely, I'm a government minister and I know what I'm doing. You put me on and I'll show you. And but he, he needed you to say that, you see. You painted the grey into colour, Edwina. But Edwina. How did the sparks come yay. about? Was it the oh. Jewish was it the Jewish mother in waiting in you? Was there anything about your Jewishness or your nurturing or charming with your chicken soup? Yes, was it? <laughs> did you dazzle him with your fish balls? I think you need to understand that I'm the kind of Jewish mother that orders in catering. <laughs> I mean, I am curious though, either with John Major or with others. Did 
your Jewishness express itself, obviously, in that kind of intimate relationship or with other politicians as well. I can't imagine there were many. Were there any other female Jewish MPs around at your time? Oh, yeah. There were people like uh, Lena Yeager. I mean, there weren't many MPs around, but there were other Jewish MPs that I can recall. But she was very left wing. Audrey Wise, I think, was Jewish. But, you know, if they're going to be very left wing, and I'm a Thatcherite, we're not going to find too much common ground. Let's put it like that. What I found was I was a member of the Conservative Friends of Israel, and that included people who weren't Jewish. That's how we managed to get to see Rabin in Jerusalem. And I stayed with that for a very long time. And there was a Labour Friends of Israel. So sometimes we would find ourselves doing things together. It wasn't the main thing I wanted to do. I wanted to do health. I wanted to try and get more women into the House of Commons. I wanted to do supporting people who wanted to stand for Parliament. I still do all of that. And bearing in mind that my family had said no to my marriage and my kids by then were at boarding school and I was just concentrating, working very hard in the House of Commons. You do 90 hours a week in the House of Commons, believe me, you haven't got much time for anything else much. Was your mum still with us when the revelation of the affair was published in the diaries? Yes, she passed away in 2004 Mm -hmm. and we did the first batch of diaries in 2002. But by then we were living in a different world entirely. I finished Parliament. Tony Blair was riding high with huge majorities. Um, you have no idea what that can feel like, you know, that also rams and, and the, um, the marriage had long since founded and we had been living pretty separate lives long before I actually got a divorce. In fact, when I met my second husband, John Jones, who was a metropolitan police officer, senior detective, arrested the bad guys, retired with a flying squad tie and uh, his own hair and his own teeth with me thinking... Ooh. Wouldn't mind being arrested <laughs> by you. guest <laughs> on my radio program. But by the time uh, we got married, and I said to my mum, "You're coming to this one." And um, she looked deep into John's eyes. And he had brown eyes, brown hair. And she mm. said, "I'm sure you've got Jewish blood, John. I'll come to this one. I have to bring oh. some reinforcements." So she brought her sister, who was very religious who brought her daughter as reinforcements, who was very religious. So we ended up with quite a collection, quite a phalanx of religious Jews at our wedding. How have you felt now that sort of you've left Parliament behind? Have you, that kind of, that Jewish background, that Jewish influence, what you've spoken about your mother, uh, and you've obviously diversified into so many things from going in the jungle on I'm a Celebrity, all the broadcasting, the novel writing, the diaries. I mean, you know, a complete polymath, you've done so many different things. When do you feel at your most Jewish? I feel at my most Jewish in a way uh, on the occasion when I go, for example, to Princess Road Shul, mm. uh, which I didn't do this year, but I did before COVID. Beautiful shul built ooh, 1880s, I think, it's... before the influx of the Ashkenazis. So it's, it's, it has a real Sephardi feel to it. They're not that far from the university. They're walking yeah. distance from the university. So they have good links there. And I am... Um, a member there in that I chose to pay a sub. But the Liverpool Jewish community is tiny, tiny, tiny now, and mostly old. Again, I support um, Merseyside Jewish Community Care, and I've said to them, you know, if you're having a fundraiser and you want me to come, I'm happy to do that. Did your mum live there till the end, or did you bring her closer to you? Yep, yep. She was in the family house in Chilwell, which is walking distance from Chilwell Shul, until she was 86. I mean, you know how the roles change as an elderly parent gets elderly and you become more mum-like to them. 
And I used to make a point of going to see her every four to six weeks and always making sure that we knew when I was going to see her again and speaking on the phone every, every, every week. And I remember on one occasion, she said to me, I need some help. Go on, what do you want, mum? She said, well, the roof needs doing. And I've had it cost, it's going to cost £10,000. Do you think you could help? And I grinned and said, this is my opportunity. The answer is no. <laughs> this is you moving into a flat. And she oh, said, wow. I'll be carried out of this house in my box. And I said, no, you won't, mum. You'll be carried out of this house on a stretcher because <laughs> stairs and the toilet upstairs and outside loo. Mm. Come on, it's time for you to go and find a flat. And she grumbled about it. But then she did what she always did. About six weeks later, I get a phone call saying, oh, Mr. So-and-so is going into hospital and she's got a very nice flat. I played cards in there and it doesn't look like she's coming out. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so I'm, on, I'm on, the, on the next train and uh, we go and have a look and it inevitably it belongs to somebody I was at school with who tries to charge us an absolute bloody fortune for this flat. <laughs> Every time I go back to Liverpool, something happens that reminds me of why I left. But anyway, we got it and she had the time of her life choosing carpets and curtains and deciding to, she said to me, I haven't chosen new carpets in 40 years. Well, now's your chance, Mum. I had a wonderful time. New kitchen, everything. She was good there for another six, seven years. I think you had the very best of the Liverpool Jewish community. During the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was absolutely buzzing, as they say in Manchester. I knew from about the age of 14, 15 or so that I was going to have to leave for several reasons, partly because... If I was in Liverpool, I was at my parents and we were going to end up having rows and I didn't want to do that. And there was nothing for somebody like me to do. There was no, there was no hope. There was no future. There were no, none of the jobs, you know, the, everybody else that I knew from school was either training to be a teacher, training to be a nurse. Oh, that's not me. I don't like blood. Or going to the College of Commerce to be a secretary. And all I could think of was I want to be the kind of person that had a secretary. You know, I was simply not prepared to accept those sort of assumptions. I didn't know quite where I was going. and I didn't know quite what I was going to succeed at. But I knew that if I see a high wall, I like to see if I can jump over it. And I was really sad to see how the city declined, how the community sort of shrank in on itself, became old, 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 needing help all the time. It's come back, it's what, 18 years since mum died. And the last 10 years have seen that city revive in a fabulous, fabulous way. I'm so excited to see what's happened there. I've got a Ukrainian family staying with me from Odessa. Between me and God, this is shush. My grandmother came from Poltava, which we discovered is Ukraine. So there was a little ghost sitting on my shoulder saying, Edvina, you have to do something. There is obviously another a strong female, albeit non-Jewish, character that, that we need to talk about in your relationship with her, and that's obviously Margaret Thatcher. Did Margaret Thatcher ever connect with you on your Jewish level? You know, she had some very, very close Jewish friends or advisors. Did that element of your character ever create a connection or a barrier, or was it irrelevant to your political relationship? I think because Margaret was conscious that she had tried for other seats and been turned down and was then accepted in Finchley mm. with a much more diverse community. 
with a lot of Jews and with a lot of Hindus, and that they extended towards her acceptance and a dislike of discrimination, and they expected that in return. I think she learned a lot. She was very conscious of that. And as a result, she promoted into cabinet quite a lot of people who perhaps raised eyebrows amongst the more traditionalists in the Conservative Party at the time. Uh, so she had Keith Joseph, she had Liam Britton, in fact, Macmillan, a previous prime minister who was a snob and a nasty piece of work <laughs> in his own little way, uh, was reported to have said that the cabinet had more old Estonians than old Etonians in it. Mm. Ooh, but nasty. one of the ways in which that helped me was uh, Keith Joseph asked me to become his PPS fairly soon after I entered Parliament. So I was swept into the milieu of an extremely brilliant and extremely nice man who gathered around him very able ministers. He was the Secretary of State for Education. And for about a year and a half, I was the person who carried his bag. And uh, he was absolutely lovely. I remember once we were having a conversation. He would be distracted very, very easily by anything intellectual. And he got distracted by one of the other ministers talking about a book he'd been reading. And he turned to me and he said, Edwina, do you have a book in your handbag? And I said, yes, I do, Secretary of State. And I pulled mm -hmm. it out and it was Spike Milligan, Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall. A very funny book. And um, all Keith said was, oh, you minx. <laughs> <laughs> and you love that. Yeah. <laughs> you are, Edwina, if we may say so, you oh. are very minxy but you do seem to us utterly ageless the pizzazz the energy the vibrancy i know you've had a couple of physical challenges recently you mentioned the, the hip operation but where's that coming from is that a kind of jewish trait or is that just the unique edwina-ness of you i have no idea i can tell you that one of the things that goes on my twitter profile isn't to do with my beauty or pizzazz or whatever. It's that I won Celebrity Mastermind twice. Which brings us very neatly towards the end of our podcast about the whole Jewish mother me ethos and the reason that we came together, the three of us, to set this up. Jewish mothers, obviously, there is the stereotype. They eat until you're sick. You know, they're not happy until you eat. They'll smother you with kindness. They are like lionesses. But Jewish mothers, the Jewish mothers we've known personally and, and through our lives, working lives or through friends, have always been or predominantly been wise women. And we always ask our guests about any of the wisdom that they've either accrued as Jewish mothers or through the Jewish mothers they've known, sayings or, or feelings. And we wondered if there's any particular wisdom you want to share with our listeners that you've gained as a Jewish mother or through the Jewish mother figures you've known. I think it would be from my mum and her behaviour after I got married and had a baby, which is, if there's family conflict, don't add to it, but stay in touch. That's what love is all about. And love should be at the forefront of everything that we do. And love can bring people back into the faith. Love can bring people to an understanding of our history and our tradition. If more people had loved us through the centuries, there'd be many millions more of us. And the Thank contribution, you. the very diverse contribution that we can make. I feel very proud that in my blood is the same blood as Einstein and Marx and Mendelssohn and, oh, you name them, extraordinary people. We can do whatever we want and we can do it selfishly or we can do it for the service of others. And I think what makes me Jewish and what makes me feel very much like a Jewish mother is that the question about the service of others is non-debatable. It's what we do. 
Edwina, on behalf of all of us, thank you so, so much for wisdom and humor and whatever it is you're taking. Please send three, <laughs> please send three bottles to North Manchester and producer <laughs> Phil, he'd like one as well. Uh, you know, he doesn't like to be left out. So thank you, Edwina Curry. You have been listening to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. My name's Angela Epstein. I'm Lynn Dover. And I'm Elopian. And an absolutely unforgettable hour spent in the company of the utterly unique Edwina Curry. Thank you so much for that. Uh, if you want to find us and get more information, our listeners, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, podcasts, Spotify, all the platforms. Um, if you want a dose of wisdom as, as such as we've heard today, thank you also to Phil Salter from Northern Air Productions for making all the magic work. And Edwina, we wish you and all your lovely family only wonderful happy times. And, and thank you again for your company. Thank My you. pleasure. Bye now.